G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is the Round 7 Review. A big, well, four days of football so far and we're going to get a fifth because uh, this round isn't complete until tomorrow evening when Adelaide takes on St Kilda. But we are going on, as per usual, recording on Sunday evening, so... It's uh, a eight-ninths of a round review, if you like. And uh, a big few days of footy, some uh, really entertaining football play. Jeez, it's a welcome change to be able to say that. As I say, very good evening to my co-host, Mark Fine. How are you going, Fine? I'm well. What a day of football. We'll talk about it, of course. But uh, pretty amazing goings on between Port Adelaide and Carlton. And, well, as you said, uh, we're going to have to get used to not finishing a round of football on a Sunday because the merry-go-round is about to start spinning. Of course, this round ends tomorrow with Adelaide St Kilda, but there's still plenty of good football to be played throughout the season and quite a few teams staking a claim. I'm looking forward to it. I'll tell you what else never stops spinning, Fine, and that is the uh, burger-flipping machine at a certain establishment in Albert Park. You make it sound automated. I know it was just a segue, but it's not. It's all brilliant work, as it has been for 81 years. Lockdown or not, they are still providing fantastic feeds for families in and around Melbourne, southeastern suburbs. And you speak at 144 Bridport Street, Alpha Park, of course, of Andrew's Hamburgers, do you not? I do. And uh, they are far and away the best burgers in the world, Finey. And uh, we know why. Why don't you run through some of the uh, tempting ingredients? Take the patty. It's pure Australian beef. No mucking around, no fillers. Just meat as it should be. And it's no coaster. It's a full beef patty. Then you've got those buns. Always fresh. Always perfectly, perfectly prepared. Just a little bit of, a little bit of grill off the barbecue surface. The beading vegetables that you so rightly describe with freshness, tomatoes and lettuce and a slice of good old Aussie cheese, if you want a cheeseburger, and it all makes for burger perfection. Andrew's Hamburgers, 144, Bridport Street, Albert Park. I'd also like to mention his near neighbours, West Point Properties, Nick Spartels, who'd be unfortunately crying into his Andrew's Hamburger as we speak, a mad Carlton supporter, so close to victory today, but that doesn't in any way diminish the output from his wonderful construction company, West Point Property. So they're two great sponsors, Rowan, and both all parties involved looking forward to tonight's show. They are great sponsors, and uh, you are a great audience, and we're about to give you a flipping big dose of footy goodness. Let's start with the wraparound. On Footyology... Wrap around. Round seven kicked off in Perth. Isn't it great to see footy back in a heritage state? And uh, I'm not allowed to say it seems like a long time ago, Thursday night, finally, but uh, I sort of just did. 
and it does because a lot has taken place since. But this was a significant game with a significant result and a very, very good performance by the Collingwood Football Club. A 22-point victory over Geelong, 8-9-57, defeating the Cats, a really low score by their standards, 5-5-35. The star of the show, absolutely no doubt, Jordan Degoe, five goals, including three in that final term. In fact, he was the only multiple goal kicker in the entire game from either side. He was terrific. Adam Trelaw, terrific for the Pies. Darcy Moore, great defence. Scott Pendlebury and Taylor Adams, as reliable as ever in the Magpie midfield. And Braden Maynard, impressive as well. And for the Cats, not nearly as many contributors for them. Paddy Dangerfield, always in there in the thick of the action. Cam Guthrie, having a pretty good season. Uh, the rest, you know, we struggled to come up with that, that many best, to be perfectly honest. You'd probably put Gary Ablett in there. Maybe Menegola, I thought he was a little bit mistake-prone, though. And uh, Zach Tui tried hard off half-back. But finally, Collingwood made the running in this game. Held Geelong to a measly one-goal three at half-time. I didn't look it up, but, geez, it would be a long time since the Cats had that little on the board halfway through a game. And uh, never really looked like uh, getting their noses in front at any stage. I, uh, very, if you had any doubts about the pies, they should have been erased with this win, I reckon. They certainly, with Jordan Degoe up front, and there was a little bit of a challenge by the Cats in that third quarter, but put to bed very quickly with that three-goal last quarter from Degoe. They have options up forward uh, with Dugowie up there that are dangerous. Stevenson a little bit quiet in the last couple of weeks, but you'd never ex- you'd, you'd never take for granted that Elliot's not going to score against you. I guess for the Pies, it's uh, whether they can get any scoring out of the midfield that really caps off a dangerous forward line. Remember that forward line still doesn't have a great height structure, but boy, it worked well on Thursday night, didn't it? Because there was plenty of floor ball to be won. And they were there at the drop of the ball. What is their strength, though, certainly, is that Brody grundy led midfield where you've got Grundy, of course, such a damaging footballer. And Trelaw back, he's averaging 33 possessions in reduced quarters. That's amazing. Their back line, and of course, you add Pendlebury and Adams and other players who run through the midfield that give them a fair bit of depth. Their back line, when you consider that Howe's not playing, Rowan, that... that Backline has kept opposition teams to less than 40 total points in five of seven games. That's pretty extraordinary. They team beautifully together and uh, they both negate and rebound in, in equal measures. And uh, you're right. I mean, we really, in fact, I went so far as to say with how out, I didn't think they could win the flag. Well, you know, that may still be the case, but uh, there's no sign of an apparent weakening of that defence at the moment. I also think their midfield is a lot better these days at working hard defensively, which uh, was often cited as a criticism of them. Um, but the key for me for the Pies is always their ball movement. And again, it was quick and it was direct. Uh, you know, they f- forsook. Is that a word? Forsook? Yeah, I think so. I don't think it is. Uh, but they uh, ignored that tendency they have to be very boundary-centric and always look for the corridor to great effect. 
and that, given the um, you know the lack of real consistent marking, tall marking targets in that forward fifty, means that those medium sized forwards are getting quick and clean delivery, and that's just how it transpired. And Dugowie, I mean, look, you know, uh, there are major issues off the field there, and uh, I think though we can laud him suitably for his on-field performance. Uh, he is some footballer. He's got. I tell you what, I love about him. He's a natural footballer. You know, he, he's uh, he's not necessarily the greatest athletic specimen, but he's got great footy nous and uh, just some natural footy skills. And he certainly has an eye for a goal. Yeah, I think we've got a few of these to celebrate because, interestingly enough, some of these up-and-coming youngsters were about to talk about one in the Bulldogs-Essendon game. Uh, there's one at the Gold Coast. There's one at Brisbane. And they may eventually become midfielders. But you know what? So valuable are scoring forwards that these players actually may stay as permanent dangerous forwards. I mean, scoring is at a premium like never in the game of Australian rules football. So why would you remove Dugowie from the forward line? You're not robbing Peter to pay Paul. You're robbing Peter to pay a debt that cannot be repaid anywhere else on the field. I, I think he will stay a forward, as will some of the guys we're about to mention. We should uh, talk quickly about the Cats too. And um, aren't they, uh, well, not a tease, but uh, they'll turn in a really good performance as they did against Brisbane and then let you down. And uh, it's been a bit of a pattern. They they did it against Hawthorne early in the year, played a, a terrific four quarters and then were just getting over the line and um, compounding the uh, problems with losing come um, the well, serious ramifications of Joel Selwood's hamstring injury. He was uh, trying to play it down, but you think that's probably at least a couple of weeks. And Jordan Clark, who, uh, you know, a very good young player, he uh, isn't having much luck on the injury front and looks like he'll be out for a a spell as well. So uh, they've got their challenges, the Cats. And as you pointed out in Footyology Final Siren after the game, um, they're not getting the same value out of those small forwards that they were in the first half of last year. And when that pressure game lapses, I think they find it a lot harder to score. Yeah, it's all about scoring now for them, isn't it? Can they put a decent enough score on the board if Hawkins is well held and probably Dangerfield and Ablett kept at least out of commission forward of, say... Forward, in the forward 50. So I think it's all about scoring power and scoring ability for the Cats, and they're starting to look pretty pretty lean on that score. All right, good win for the Pies, who uh, will certainly be back among the uh, top flag fancies after that effort. That was Thursday evening. Uh, let's switch forward 24 hours to Friday. <laughs> Metricon Stadium, the venue for Essendon taking on the Western Bulldogs. Uh, always plenty of interest about this game. The Bombers, uh, good record, but had they done it against quality opposition with the exception of that win over the Pies? And the Bulldogs, well, they uh, certainly look pretty good stringing a few wins together before being unceremoniously ripped apart by Carlton last week. Could they respond? Well... The answer is emphatically yes. They were terrific from the get-go against Essendon. Dominated play in that first quarter without necessarily getting enough value for it. Essendon 
managed to somehow jag three goals and get within uh, four points at the first break. But thereafter, the Doggies really took a stranglehold on the scoreboard as well. Not getting necessarily value for that at half time, but really put the result to bed in the third term. Slamming on five goals, three to just three behinds. Uh, the game done and dusted at three-quarter time and then uh, actually built a, a more commanding lead still until Essendon got some very cheap goals at the end. In fact, the last three goals of the game, the Bombers. But a really comfortable 42-point win for the Dogs. 14-9, 93, defeating Essendon, 7-9, 51. For the Doggies, three goals to Mitch Wallace, two to Suckling, Two to Cody Waitman, and uh, what an impressive debut that was. I'll let you wax lyrical about him. Singles the rest. And for the Dons, a pretty lean story for them. Jaden Laverde, the only multiple goal kicker for them, with two. They had winners everywhere, Finey. I thought Tim English, uh, clearly best on ground. Geez, a promising young ruckman. Actually got... Uh, doubled for hitouts, but his hitouts were far more effective than were those won by Andrew Phillips. Great midfielders to be uh, tapping the ball to. Bontempelli outstanding. Liberatore and McRae, very good as well. And, of course, East Melbourne's finest mullet, Bailey Smith, who, uh, apart from being a very talented young footballer, is also a very consistent young footballer. And Essendon just didn't have the answers, finally. Without uh, Heppel, and particularly this week without Dylan Shield, uh, they were a pretty rudderless ship in the middle of the ground. And uh, that was reflected in them getting hammered in all those key statistics. Best for them, well, McGrath tried hard. Adam Saad, pretty good off halfback. Uh, Darcy Parrish had a crack. And uh, I guess the veterans down back, Hurley and Hooker, they weren't... Uh, disgraced by any means, but it was a pretty long night for the Dons and another reminder, finally, of why uh, so many of us seem to think the Doggies are a chance of doing big things at the end of a season. Yeah, I thought the Doggies, I reckon in their review, they'll they'll have a look at a number of opportunities to have won that game by even more. Their usage inside 50 wasn't perfect. Essendon were abysmal. In fact, until the last 10 minutes, and for some reason, I guess with the heat out of the game, and Devon Smith and McDonald Tipping Woody decided to almost double their output for the rest of the game. Certainly, I reckon McDonald Tipping Woody might have finished with six possessions. Four of them came in the last 10 minutes, and Devon Smith kicked a nice goal. And I reckon Essendon's head was in the game. Just little things. Hooker just really going on and on about a ball that he touched off the boot of Josh Bruce. That might be the case, but... These goal reviews are not based on the theatricals of the footballer, Kale. They're based on evidence as per the video. So it doesn't matter how many people you tell you touched it. It doesn't matter. Devon Smith gave away a 50-metre penalty for blocking McRae. He then went and spoke to McRae about it, told him off, told the umpire off about it. It just didn't seem to me as though Essendon on field were in the in the contest like a mature football team should be on the con- in the contest. I think that they were... They had a number of players easily distracted. They were complaining, and in the end, they only have themselves to blame for what was a comprehensive beating. Their forward line was always going to be debatable. Mick Hibbard, he was recruited from North Melbourne. Uh, he's not a forward. He's simply not a forward. Ned Cale in his first game, 
excuses can be made, but still, when you're out there, uh, the fact is your name's on the team sheet. You're expected to perform. He, unfortunately, didn't provide much. The other first game, of course, Cody Waitman that you alluded to earlier. Yeah, uh, uh, I guess Bruce McAvaney said it for all of us and probably a little bit more with the first piece of play by Cody Waitman, a fantastic mark, third up in the contest, and then a brilliant around-the-corner goal from 45 metres out. Look, the kids... I thought Bruce was going to adopt him by the end of the night. <laughs> I'm glad. That's. Uh, I thought he was going to do something to him and I was worried what it was going to be. Nevertheless, a brilliant young talent. And as I said, uh, look, he played his school football in a pocket where it would have been hard to get a kick because he would he played alongside Max and Ben King. I don't know how much there was left over after those two went for the ball. But you'd leave him up forward. He's an actual forward. He loves kicking a goal. And goals are worth a heck of a lot in football today. You start your career with two goals. Well, have a look at the Coleman medal. Papley's in front on 15. If Cody had played every game and averaged two goals per game, he'd currently be sitting second. So, yeah, leave him where he is and he's a very exciting little footballer with that new... It's a new quality for youngsters, Rowan. They're not What's the that? They're not the um, demure, self-effacive, ultra-modest players that we've had in the last couple of decades. They are good. And when you hear them interviewed, they know they're good and more power to them. We'll be talking about a couple more shortly. But it was a it was an entertaining debut. I'll tell you, we're looking forward to plenty more Cody Waitman in the years to come. Uh, final word on the Bombers from me. The scoreline was 4-1 before this game, which obviously superficially is impressive. But you had to think about the quality of those wins. You know, snuck home against Freo and Sydney, neither of whom are expected to feature prominently. Collingwood, a very good win. Lost to Carlton and probably should have lost by more and struggled to get over the line against an injury-plagued North Melbourne. So it was an outstanding form. And I'll say this, and we did I did say this on Footyology Final Siren, I've still got major doubts about both the quality and depth of Essendon's midfield. Every single player in that group and actually, I was probably a bit harsh on Darcy Parrish because I, I don't think he's been played in the midfield enough and he can be the fully rounded mid, I reckon. But most of the others, there is at least some query on their skill set. You know, Dylan Shield perhaps is kicking. Um, Dylan Smith, um, Devin Smith, sorry, uh, probably his discipline. David Zaharakis, his consistency and capacity to disappear from games. Andy McGrath sometimes barrels the ball a bit. Zach Merritt, I think his kicking can be a little bit overrated. You know, so they lose one or two out of that group and it really hits them hard. And I, I thought it was never more obvious than it was in that game on Friday night. So a bit of thinking to do for the Dons. They've got Adelaide this week and uh, I, I'm not convinced that's a gimme either, to be honest. Time will tell, but uh, yeah. Four and two with a game in hand. They're still very much mathematically in the mix, but you just get a sense from Thursday, from Friday night, that they might not be in the best eight in the competition. And we'll see whether or not they can just keep things bubbling along mathematically until they get a couple of key players back. All right. That is the story of the Doggies. Very impressive win. And that is the story of Thursday and Friday night footy. Let's talk about the weekend. 
Well, a lot of anticipation about the first game on the Saturday menu. GWS finding some uh, reasonable form, although having been upset by Port Adelaide and Brisbane, um, who have looked particularly good most of this season. What was going to happen there? Well, the Lions, uh, as they did in the corresponding home and away game last year against the Giants, got off to a good start and really just held the advantage thereafter. 4-4 to 2-3 in that opening term. Three goals to two in the second quarter. Um, The Giants made their play, if you like, in that third term. Got within, I think, eight points at one stage. But every time they threatened Brisbane, uh, to their credit, and I, I thought this showed a streak of improved maturity, if you like, were able to rebound very effectively and maintain that scoreboard advantage and ended up closing it out with three goals to only two in the final term to run out 20-point winners. 13 goals, 10, 88, defeating the Giants, 10, 8, 68. For the Lions, two, <coughs> pardon me, two to Charlie Cameron, two to Rayner, two to Zach Bailey, singles the rest, and 10 individual goal kickers, always a good sign. For the Giants, three to Himmelberg, Two to Taranto. I was about to call him Vin Taranto, the former Coburg player. Two to Jeremy Cameron. Um, what do you make of this fighting? Because the Giants, every time they start looking ominous, they seem to take another backward step. Yeah, look, with Toby Green out of the side, I'm always concerned about their ability to score goals. Jeremy Cameron needs to kick goals like a full forward, like a genuine spearhead, because a couple of times he had key... Shots at goal that just were never going to go through. And unfortunately, he's a slightly unreliable kicker, I'd have to say. All up. Good to see Taranto back. What a good young footballer he is. And it's good news because there was a school of thought that said we might not see him at all this season. And I guess without the 81-day break, we would have seen precious little. But now he gets a good run at more than half the season. Brisbane, if you, put, if you want to put the best players for Brisbane down, this is a classic team effort. Not one of their midfielders got over 20 possessions. Uh, the usually prolific Lockie Neal, well held, kept to nine kicks and 11 handballs, I think, or thereabouts. Harris Andrews was the best player on the ground in the first half. He was fantastic, commanding at centre-half back. But it was the cameo roles and the contribution they get from everybody that meant they won the game. Cam Rayner had not been spectacular throughout the game, but you were right, in that third quarter, a 36-point lead disappeared. GWS were driving at Brisbane. This was a very good game. This was a, a good team coming at a good team. It really looked like good football. And you know what? When a very good team gets on their bike and Kelly starts getting a bit of possession and you've got the dangerous Himmelberg up forward, you've got opportunities, basically, with most ball in hand, with players that have the ability to take advantage of having ball in hand, it took something for Brisbane to arrest the slide. Well, this mark and goal by Cam Rayner was so top shelf, it was so timely, it was just, for the moment, the perfect response. That's not to say that GWS were done. You know, 14, what, were they 14 down at three-quarter time? Uh, yeah, I think uh, Brisbane got a late one, but they did get... Well, that was the, that's points. the one they got, that... Great goal by yeah. Cam Rayner. Well, then he doubled up with the dribbled goal at the start of the last, last quarter. quarter as well. It was a fantastic goal. He gets the ball outside of the play on the boundary and has to make a very quick assessment. 
Cam Rayner, the knock on his game used to be his goal kicking. Well, not anymore. These were two beautiful goals. So a goal either side of the break. And Cam Rayner doesn't do a lot much more. But that wins the game for Brisbane. There was um, thrust and parry. And again, a player who had not done much. But we know that Lincoln McCarthy is always up for a good mark. And the matter was decided with another Lincoln McCarthy beauty. And... He did what Cameron had not been able to do consistently throughout the afternoon. Go back and kick it through the high diddle diddle. Thank you, Jack Dyer. And so really, it was efforts right around the ground by Brisbane. Mitch Robinson was lively. Hugh McLuggage was active. Uh, There were contributions, even contributions, and I'll be fascinated to know how the umpires saw the game 3-2-1 wise because, to be honest, very hard to pick the best player for Brisbane other than to say it was a, a sound team effort. The two berries. Isn't that younger Berry strong for his sixth game of league football? How impressive is he? You know, all well, that, the- that, that was the point I wanted to make when you talk about team effort. I think perhaps one area where they are a better side again this year is that evenness. And I was going to mention the, the two berries, but also uh, Zach Bailey. You know, the, the guys that have been there a couple of years now, or a few years now, and... They just keep improving incrementally season by season and it ends up making a significant difference. And they're allowed to do it. They're allowed to be themselves. So McCarthy's allowed to fly. Rainer's allowed to go for the spectacular. They're not being stymied by a coach who is devoted to uh, substance over style. Now, I know that sounds counterintuitive, but in our game of football, let style be because... When you've got Cameron up forward and McCarthy and Rayner, then substance can quell players like that's innate ability to win games of football. And I love the fact that they've got a coach in Fagan who does not in any way stymie their creativity. That's quite clear, isn't it, Rowan? Absolutely. And uh, look, my uh, without giving anything away, I mean, my rant sort of speaks to that but there's no doubt in my mind now the the more successful sides are going to be the more enterprising sides I'm hoping that you know this weekend or the last couple of weeks might have been a bit of a flashpoint in how teams are attacking the game and during the darkest parts of the uh the bore off that some of the earlier rounds have been Brisbane have absolutely been a shining light in the way they play and hopefully that's going to set the example for other teams because not only is it better to watch, it works. Ah, spot on, right? Spot on. Anyway, that's how the game fell to Brisbane. They had more players that were, well, all players who made a contribution and more players who shun when the game was up for grabs. Good win to the Lions. That was Saturday afternoon. Let's talk about Saturday twilight. All right, second game in suburban Sydney, this one at the SCG and another defeat at home for the Sydney Swans and another victory for the resurgent Gold Coast. They ended up winning by 32 points, 13-14-92, defeating the Swans 9-6-60. So perhaps could have been victory by a little bit more than it was in the finish For the Suns, two goals to Weller, two to the exciting Isaac Rankin, two to Sam Day, including finding what a goal. How do you like one of Day's goals, the one from the boundary? Yeah, the first goal. Yeah, great. Oh, absolute beauty. He is uh, playing some pretty decent footy at the moment. 
They were the multiples for Gold Coast and for the Swans, two each to McCartan, Alia, Papley and Haywood. Look, it was always going to be a battle, this, wasn't it? Uh, so many outs, key outs for them, the ones we've been talking about every week, plus Heaney, plus Kennedy. It was hard to see how they were going to have the personnel to be able to get the result, and that's pretty much how it panned out. Yeah, I spent a lot of the game asking myself who's who when certain Sydney players got the ball that I couldn't recognise. I think I picked up, a, his name Stevens, and Elijah Taylor bobbed up there at one point. There were some new names and some decent performances. They kept themselves in the game right till the last 10 minutes. In fact, you spoke of Sam Day's first goal, which was a fantastic snap. Unfortunately, his second goal was a very tepid, lukewarm free kick that he received. Uh, The player penalised was Luke Parker, but actually I think the umpire blew the whistle a bit early because Parker had his eyes not on the ball, went back with the fly of the ball, but he barely touched Day. So he really didn't infringe. And given that Sydney had not been able to get some free kicks in their forward line five minutes previous, a clear push in the back uh, to one of their forwards going forward for a mark. Might have been McCartan, might have been one of their other players. But I thought Sydney actually gave a decent account of themselves, even though they were pretty well outperformed for most of the afternoon, given their lack of personnel. Their forward line is veneer thin, even though they have the leading goal kicker in the competition in Tom Papley. Alir caused a bit of problems in the first half, didn't he, with a couple of goals, and it just showed maybe a, a slight deficiency in the back line for the Gold Coast because it seemed as though his marking presence was a step too far. Nevertheless, they were able to quell his forward line presence. I thought Jack Bowes actually worked his way into playing a very good game for the Gold Coast. You mentioned Rankin. Now, How's he for a precocious talent? So that's the fourth of these younger players, Rowan, that I wanted to mention. Waitman, Rankin, Cam Rayner, and Jordan Dugowie, all of whom I'm sure have the ability to play in the midfield, as does, say, a Tom Papley. But at the moment, goals are at such a premium. Why would you move a goal kicker, even if his junior pedigree says that he should be playing in the midfield and getting plenty of possessions, why would you move him out of the forward line? So for the immediate future, leave Rankin up forward. I know that he's being slated as a future midfield star, but when they get Raoul back in the team, haven't they got the basis to go forward with a youthful team of exponential talent? You, you've got a bit of experience around that. But when I say experience, I'm talking about players two or three years their senior. Only really David Swallow provides long-term experience in the midfield there. Nevertheless, they create quite a bit of excitement at the moment, Gold Coast. And if you look at the numbers, if you consider the fact that a lot of football is going to be played in the southeast of Queensland for the remainder of the season, this team that everybody had virtually without exception in their bottom two, could play finals this year, Roka? Well, we're certainly on track for it and uh, exciting. And just to your earlier point, talking about youth, I wonder how long it's been since Sydney fielded a side this um, inexperienced. Just run down some of the names. Right off the top of your head, the what would be the aggregate games between these guys? Uh, Ryan Clark, well, he's one of the more experienced ones, Riley Stoddart. It was, that, no, was that number one, Riley Stoddart? I think he is. Uh, no, he's number 33. Who was number one? 
number one is Chad Warner, with who I was getting to. But just yeah. let me go down the list. So uh, Clark, Stoddart, Rowbottom, Dylan Stevens, Elijah Taylor, Rob, oh, Fox is older and has played a bit, um, Chad Warner, even Colin O'Reard. I mean, geez, there's not much experience in that 22. So, yeah, I think they probably did do well to hang in as long as they did. But um, definitely a season of uh, rebuilding for the Swans, isn't it? It certainly is. And I, there was a moment late in that last quarter where I feel that you would have been absolutely fuming, yelling at the television. About what? Well, Rankin got the ball, and I can't remember who was commentating. But do you know what they said he was? What? Precocious. Oh, no, and, I thought, only one. and I thought that yeah. bloke's up the other end of the ground. <laughs> and that, of course, is Jack Lacocious, who's precocious, and he knows how to make a pro blush. <laughs> um, actually, he's a, he's a very different sort of Jack Lacocious from the Jack Lacocious we were waxing lyrical about at the start of the year, playing at the other end of the ground for starters. But Look, it is exciting. Um, you know, look, I, I think we're all sort of thirsting for something a bit different about football, be it the way it's played or the teams that are um, sort of uh, residing at the top end of a ladder. And um, they're certainly worth getting exciting about because aside from winning, they also play an attractive brand of footing. So really enjoying their success at the moment. And uh, I'm pretty sure I am not the only one. Okay, that is Saturday afternoon and Saturday twilight, which left this week only one game on the Saturday evening. Let's talk about that one. (laughs) Richmond took on North Melbourne on Saturday evening and uh, things starting to look a bit crook for the Roos. They desperately needed a performance of substance. Did they deliver it? No, they didn't. And uh, Richmond looked pretty good, but... I think it was a combination of that and the Roos looking very, very shabby indeed. In fact, in the finish, uh, probably lucky they didn't lose by more than the 54 points. They ended up going down by Richmond. 11-11, 77, the old Lord Nelson, defeating North Melbourne just 2-11, 23. Those two goals... Both coming in the second quarter. Three goalless quarters for the Roos. That hasn't happened too often, certainly not in the modern era. Uh, for the Tigers, two to Jake Arts. He could have probably had five. He missed a couple of sitters. Two to Mabior Chole. Uh, just gets better and better by the week, that man. I love watching him. Two to Dusty Martin. And uh, for the Roos, well, I'll give both their goal kickers, Trent Dumont, and Josh Walker, who also did take uh, one of the marks of a season, a very good grab indeed. But um, we should talk about the Tigers here because yet again, they have managed to stay on the winner's list while missing a number of their key players. And again, they have managed to turn up some players who looked at very bright futures. And two in particular in this game, Finey, Chol, I mentioned before, but... You can see his confidence visibly growing. We know he's got the athleticism, but he's just starting to hold his marks better and he's kicking goals and he's just looking a dangerous presence. And uh, the super impressive one, and 
sure I wasn't the only person who thought, geez, this guy's pretty good. Uh, Egmawesi Smith, uh, terrific rebounding role off halfback. He was really exciting. And Shy Bolton, who, yes, has been around the scene now for, oh, I think this is season four for him. But his talent has always been pretty obvious. It's just been getting enough consistency from it and managing to work his way in front of uh, some senior rivals for a spot. Well, he certainly grabbed the opportunity this season with both hands. He's a very damaging conveyance. And uh, these guys give them mobility and pace and a really exciting look. And that exciting Richmond brand is back. The pressure is back. The swarm mentality, the speed when they forced the turnover to capitalise on it. Uh, it was the full deal. And their dominance, particularly early, was just absolute funny. In fact, even when the score, they'd only kicked uh, three goals. They were 3-2 to zero by the Roos. They had already racked up 14-1 to one inside 50s. So absolutely dominant. It's sort of indicative of how poorly they're going that on two separate occasions they have selected big-name midfielders who simply should not have been picked in the team. I mean, Cunnington, when he was picked a couple of weeks ago, was clearly unfit to play league football and Reeshaw admit, admitted so much in the post-match interview with that back injury to Cunnington. And now Zeeble, I mean... Isn't it a sign of desperation? Obviously, he barely lasted half a quarter with his hamstring injury. Is it not a sign of desperation and an indication of a lack of depth, at least in the midfield, if not the entire list, that they are willing to play players that clearly are not fit? I haven't seen that at league level for many years, and it reeks of desperation to me. Yeah, it does. And, uh, you know, I think they're another team whose lack of depth of quality, not just in midfield, but all over the parks, probably being shown up a little bit. Lack a bit of hardness, too. Uh, just speaking to a, a North insider today, I think um, that's one area they're pretty unhappy with over the last few weeks is that just lack of um, lack of hardness at the contest and at the opposition. Um, and... Yeah, quality. Look, Ben Brown, we know, is struggling. Uh, they're really missing Nick Larkey. Um, and, you know, they can't afford to lose someone of Zeeble's quality. And the other one that really hurt him, actually, was when Jai Simkin went off because he's uh, probably among their most couple of consistent players all year. Also lost uh, Zerha before the start of the game. And aside with their limited depth, I don't think can afford to be uh, without that many players who are pivotal to their performance, of course, Cunnington, the standout there. So um, it doesn't look like it's going to get a lot easier for them in the next few weeks, given that injury list. Now, no, it won't. It won't get any easier for them. And they look, along with Sydney and Adelaide, as sort of first first um, casualties of the 2020 season in that there's no way that they're going to be featuring in whatever month we play the finals in. What, what do we call it now? Uh, October action? November action? I'm not quite sure. Uh, well, still October 24, I think, the proposed grand final date. Yep, yep. So far, it's October action. Uh, as we are preparing or, or as we are recording this podcast, official word I don't believe has come through, even though you listeners to the podcast probably know this already as a result. Uh, Dustin Martin, given... What happened to Zach Merritt after he struck Jack Silvani? Is it inevitable that Dustin Martin gets a week for striking McDonald? 
No, in fact, uh, I can tell you that... Oh, so we've uh, got it through. He got a fine. Oh, that is bullshit. Sorry, sorry for swearing. Where is the consistency and where is the true to their word after the sort of rejigging of the dangerous tackle, the wording there, to mean that intent, that, that we're not going to be totally reliant on the result of an action. Now, that action was actually, for mine, more deliberate and done with more force than Zach Merritt on Silvani. So where where, where is the honesty? Where is the true to the, uh, consistency and true to the intent as laid out to the Max Review Officer by the AFL? Or are we playing elitism with the Max Review Officer where the better footballers, the star footballers in this competition are measured by a different standard, are given far more leeway than other footballers simply because we have a game that might be unattractive and we can ill afford to lose the headline acts. I am appalled with that. Well, I think there's been a few examples of that in recent times. And the other one out of that game that had a result probably contrary to what people thought, I think most people thought the Dylan Grimes one was fairly Mickey Mouse and would be thrown out, well, he also ended up with the fine. Well, what's your take on Martin on McDonald as compared to Merritt versus Silvani? Uh, not a lot of difference. Oh, it was probably fractionally more uh, within play, even though it wasn't, if that makes sense. By the Barry Hall rule? Uh, yeah, well, something oh, not about distant. Yeah, look, it, it just... The Silvani one looked worse because he clearly um, disposed of the ball, you know. And, um, yeah, look, not a lot of difference, to be honest. And, look, is it a subconscious thing? I, I suspect it is. A petulant act that was... When that week was handed out, so many people who are... Uh, invested with the responsibility of covering the game, and I feel may be in some way beholden to the AFL. In other words, when the AFL makes a decision, or be it through their match review officer, they tend to be supported because ultimately they know where their bread is buttered. Uh, we're quick to say, yep, a week is the right thing because it was a non-football act. How often did we hear those three words put together, Rowan, non-football act? Yeah, yeah. So no, this, look, is a foot, I, I... this is now a football act, is it? No, I agree with you. I agree with you. Just uh, well, when, as we wrap it up, a quick word on the Tigers' prospects. I think that they were um, dealt a very fortunate hand by the fixturing that comes to us piecemeal this season. There's no doubt when they lost all of those players back in round five, things were looking pretty grim, weren't they? They'd just recorded a much-needed victory but were still hovering outside the top eight. Uh, they lose key players, obviously, Dan Curvis, Coxon. Uh, the very important midfielder, Prestia. And on top of that, don't have two important players travelling to the hub in Edwards and Bakshar Hooley. Things were looking pretty grim for them, but the fixture dealt them a, a kind hand. Sydney maybe is the one team with even less players from their best 22 available. And North Melbourne are, are just, they're completely rudderless at the moment. So we'll see who they play next week. But I could have seen them playing two teams that they wouldn't have won against. Nevertheless, they've done the job and done it very well against North Melbourne and they're right back in the season. 
All right, well, they are the Saturday games wrapped up. Let's turn our attention to Sunday. Well, what a belter of a contest this was. The first of three games on Sunday. It was a ripper and it was a thrilling three-point win to Port Adelaide after the siren, nine goals, 10-64, defeating the gallant Blues, 9-7-61. And if uh, you're one of the few people that hasn't seen or heard about this, Robbie Gray nailed arguably the second best post-siren shot to win a game from about 45 metres out, hard up on the boundary line. He split the middle with an absolutely superb kick. And, uh, boy, big sigh of relief for the power because had he not done that, it would have been one of the great uh, we should have won that efforts of all time given the ease of the chances they missed towards the end. Charlie Dixon missed from 20 metres out. Gray himself missed from a very slight angle, not a lot further out. And then one of the all-time Barry Crockers fighting when Gray dished off a handball to Todd Marshall, who somehow from the top of the goal square contrived to also miss. But final passage of play of the game, um, I think it was, I've uh, just forgotten his name, the, uh, the former Brisbane player. It'll come to me. Hit Robbie Gray on a lead. Did pretty well to mark it, actually, under a fair bit of heat. And uh, he delivered the killer blow. It was a fantastic game of footy. Always entertaining. Eight goals in the first quarter. Scores tightened up after that. But Port prevailing. Three goals to Dixon in the end. Two to Farrell. Singles the rest. Four the Blues. Three to Mackay. He's looking pretty good. And two to Walsh. And... Uh, I know you've been into him a bit this year, Fanny, but uh, he was pretty reasonable. And what a fantastic mark he took. One of the gutsiest marks I've seen for a long time in that third quarter. Uh, they'll be licking their wounds, the Blues, because uh, did enough to win it and themselves missed a couple of chances to seal the win. But it was a, a fantastic spectacle. Uh, certainly enjoyed that game more than any other one I've watched this season. Amazing end to the game. And look, with Sam Walsh, <laughs> I don't resolve from the comments, and nor should I, that in the first five games of the season, he was sorely out of form and way down on all numbers. Definitely faith shown in keeping him in the team. And last week in that fantastic win over the Doggies, the signs were there of improvement, and he has made good on that. In this game, look, uh, you know, in the first five weeks, he'd kicked one behind. He kicked two valuable goals this week and took that fantastic mark. He was certainly amongst Carlton's best. So well done, Sam Walsh, on turning things around. And I imagine there would have been some, not words said to him, but certainly some challenges laid at his feet by David Teague. And also a great sign that David Teague can communicate to players and get more out of them. Look, I know that people are going to, have a look at those last couple of minutes or last, say, three and a half minutes of the game and say that Port Adelaide, had they not won the game, would have absolutely been shooting themselves, uh, uh, you know, not in the foot. Well, they would have shot themselves in the foot a number of times with opportunities to Dixon. Why on earth Robbie Gray, who is as good a snapshot as there is in football, would have handballed to Todd Marshall is beyond belief. He was clear at the top of the square was Robbie Gray and you know, handballed to another person who was clear, but you just wonder why instinctively somebody who throughout his career has had such a good snout for goals would have dished it off 
anyhow, it all played out with that final kick by Robbie after the siren. But we shouldn't forget that within that three and a half minutes, Rowan, Carlton also looked like they had sealed the game. Now, again, uh, I apologise. Who was the Carlton player who had a shot of goal that seems certain to be going through only for Zach Butters to mark it a foot and a half out? I mean, you know, Carlton themselves can consider themselves incredibly incredibly unlucky not to have put the game to bed there and then because from, you know, my lounge room, it looked as though that was the winning goal. What an incredibly close call that was. Yeah, just needed another another meter on a dinner. It Amazing. was Sam Mays by the Sam Mays, by the way, who speared that pass yep. to Gray at the end of the game. I think uh, Gibbons Gibbons turned the ball over for the Blues as well. Well, so. Gib- Gibbons had a, here's the thing: Gibbons had a, a, a mark, a good piece of play on the centre wing. If you're hypercritical, you'd say Gibbons should have been looking around for the short pass, even going backwards to kill the game off. He went long down the line and Jonas took a very Nick Maxwell 2010 drawn grand final like Mark, didn't he? Because he came fourth up in the pack, took this great grab and sent the Port Adelaide on their way with the ball ending up with Mays and then that kick that was well marked on the boundary by Robbie Gray. But if you're hypercritical of Gibbons, he look, he in a way he did the right thing. He went long down the boundary line but it didn't look as though he'd taken his full allotment of time. The umpire certainly wasn't pressing him to play on. And just by his spatial awareness, he wasn't really checking the options to go backwards or sideways. Look, this game started in a blaze of, not glory, but certainly a, a, a blaze for Port Adelaide. They were three goals for the good before Carlton got their feet on the ground. And given... Port Adelaide's position on the ladder and how well they've gone this season, you wondered whether Carlton were ever going to get a foothold. But more more power to Carlton. One thing about Carlton under David Teagrowan is no deficit seems to be too daunting for them. They, to use a cricket term, they play each ball on its merit. And David Teague impresses me as a coach like few others who are able to keep his players in the game and doing the team-oriented things and what they're prepared for, regardless of the score on the scoreboard. So they got themselves back into the clash. Uh, Cripps had plenty of it, but wasn't devastating. Again, it was an even effort. Harry Mackay, what a promising forward he is. And more important than what they were doing with the ball is they were making it very difficult for Port Adelaide to get much out of what has been a pretty vaunted midfield this season. Charlie Dixon, um, after a bright start, was... Kept in check, and I think Wietering has really arrived as a footballer, hasn't he? He's not only now a stopper, but he takes command of that back line, and his ability to one-grab intercept mark and distribute the ball has become key to a lot of their platform, to a lot of their forward forays. So the arrival, that for me, the arrival of Wietering matches up with big returns up forward from Mackay. Gee, Throw Charlie, Charlie Kernow into the mix. Wonder what could have been had Papley made his way to Carlton. And the high-riding blue baggers that we haven't seen for the best part of 35 years might not be far away, Rowan. No, I agree. And uh, I was going to say that, but you've sort of surmised it really. Uh, I think apart from the result, which is obviously pretty important, but funnily enough, I think Carlton will probably 
come away from the game in a way thinking they got more out of it than did the power because, well, for all the reasons you've just cited. And just on Charlie Curnow, uh, I just saw, I think I saw something before to the effect he may actually be on the way back. Um, although, no, this list still says season, but uh, there you go. It'd certainly be a bonus. But I don't think there's much dispute the Blues are on the right track. And, gee, they're playing a it's such a superior brand of footy to that which we associated with them for the last few years. So um, Carlton supporters definitely got something to be positive about in 2020, no doubt about that. All right, uh, two games to go in Sunday. Let's talk about the one in the middle. Well, we got this one wrong, Finey. Um, not that Melbourne haven't shown some promise, but uh, certainly not a team you'd want to stake your life on. But it all clicked for them today. They were super impressive and a really strong 43-point win over Hawthorne. Disappointing again. 14-7, 91 the Demons to the Hawks, 7-6, 48-3 goals to Sam Wiedemann. And we need to talk about him finally because, uh, well, perhaps it's a vindication of what we've been saying. He is so important to their structure and he was good. Three goals for them and a constant target up forward. Two to Kaziah Pickett, exciting. Two to Fritch, singles the rest, but plenty of goal kickers chipping in there. Ten individual goal kickers. For the Hawks, only four. Three to Gunston, two to Wingard and singles to O'Meara. And the debutant, Josh Morris, who actually looked quite good for them. Uh, one of the rare bright spots. But the Demons uh, stole the initiative right from the start. Increased their lead uh, in the second term. They're up by five goals already at half time, And uh, Hawthorne never threatened at any stage. And we don't get used to saying that about the Hawks, but Melbourne just had too much class, too much pace, and uh, were generally too sharp. And finally, uh, the other guy I'd like you to talk about is Christian Petrarca because it's all come together for him. What an outstanding football player he is already and could end up being who knows what. He's got everything. He's silky skilled. He's got an explosiveness about him, and uh, he's a solid customer. Well, I'll tell you what. How about Petrarca? I mean, you've really said it all there. This bloke, I reckon we're sitting here, Rowan, on the 19th of July, 2020, and because of injury and other factors to some key personnel in the competition, I'm going to say it, I reckon he's, at the moment, the best player in the comp. He's just, he's in that beautiful place where a footballer can find himself, where there's no, nothing he, with ball in hand that he's not willing to take on. How about that goal? It was a brilliant piece of play by Melbourne. Braveshaw kicked it up the field to Fritsch, who did well to kick around the body and spot up uh, the wonderful Petrarca. But that kick by Petrarca to Wiedemann in the goal square, knowing that there was a guy only five yards ahead of Wiedemann, it, it was like the magnificent drive of uh, a wonderful golfer shaping it around the trees. Wasn't it a superb kick of a man in form? Yeah, it was. And when you have a look at their best in totality today, you can see why they've come good. I mean, you've got Gorn supreme in the ruck. I thought he was probably only shaded by Petrarca for BOG honours. Clayton Oliver, terrific out of the middle. Jack Viney played a really good game. Stephen May, good in defence. Wiedemann, good up forward. So there's your bookends. 
and winged it on a wing, who's been pretty good for more years. So gave him a bit more run. So, you know, they're all areas of the ground basically covered, aren't they? And um, they look that much better aside as a result. And, you know, it's a frustrating thing about them. The foundations of a decent performance have always been there. And they were probably even there last year. It wasn't like they couldn't win enough of the footy. They were just so dysfunctional in attack. And, uh, well, we, we keep saying it, but Wiedemann, you know, Wiedemann bobs up and plays a good game, presents, you know, becomes a marking target, kicks goals, and they get the result. So um, can they keep it up? That's the $64 million question. But when all those parts of the engine turn over nicely, you can see why they uh, can be a very good team. There's another part of the engine that really impressed me today in dispatches. Harley Bunnell is a class operator and there was just a magnificent handball that resulted in a goal by Harley Bunnell. You can't, as much as you want to blood youngsters and bring in players, you can't import into your club. Well, you can. They've done it. But you can't just pluck from your list the sort of magic that Bunnell can provide with great ease. It's, it's hard to do is what I'm trying to say. And I was just thinking he and Cosy pick it up forward add that sort of X factor that clubs can really panic when put under searing pressure by players of that skill, it creates openings. Now, just from the Hawthorne perspective, Rowan, their forward line has been pretty dysfunctional. We know they've got some injury worries, but we add Tim O'Brien to the mix today with what looks like a serious ankle injury, and it's hard to see where their next, next win's coming from unless they're playing against that bottom bracket of teams who are equally stymied by injuries and form. Yeah, well, that's three losses on end now and four out of the last six. And as worrying as anything, as worrying as the losses themselves, it's just the absolute impotence of that whole forward setup. You know, 7-7 against GWS, lost by 34 points. Only 3-9 against Collingwood, lost by 32 points. And uh, seven goals today. I mean, they just, you're not going to win games of football with scores that low and no Patton, now no O'Brien. Um, where's the next wing coming from? If it's not, you know, if they're not matched up against an equally beleaguered team, I don't think it's coming very soon. And, of course, after comments by Jeff Kennett, watch this space for Alistair Clarkson and Hawthorne as well. You know, he's saying we're not getting rid of him, he's not getting rid of us, but we'll have a chat and suggesting that, there'll be no extension of any contract. Well, that normally is an indication that we might not even get to the end of the current contract if history is anything to go by, Rowan. Well, yeah, I mean, it sounds a very Jeff Kennedy-ish thing to say, but it's pretty ridiculous, I reckon. I mean, you know, if any coach in the history of the game's built up a few credits, you reckon he'd be the one. I mean, I cannot believe the leader of the club would be doing anything to sort of destabilise the situation and further rumours and innuendo, but uh, he doesn't operate like a lot of people, uh, Jay Kennett, does he? Let's move on. All right. Uh, so that was the second of the Sunday games. Uh, two to go, of course. One which we won't be covering because that's on Monday evening, but Sunday at least did finish off with a big one in Perth, the Derby. <laughs> Well, another d derby, sorry, almost said derby, and another 
win to West Coast, their 10th win over their arch rival Fremantle in a row and one which puts them back in the top eight. And from looking pretty sick three weeks ago, boy, have they turned things around, starting to look very promising now. In fact, equal on points now with the teams or team third on the ladder and with a whole swag of home games coming up. So looking pretty promising right now for West Coast. This was a game in uh, which they asserted their control pretty early and weren't seriously threatened at any stage, to be honest. Final scores, West Coast 9-8-62, defeating Fremantle just five goals, 2-32. And the details for them, four goals to Josh Kennedy, two goals to Jack Darling, and two goals to Jake Waterman. So the key forward scenario starting to look pretty handy again for the Eagles. Pretty well served by Andrew Gaff, 24 disposals for him. Jackson Nelson played some decent footy. He and Brad Shepard both finished up with 23. Jack Redden, 21. Elliot Yo, 20. Uh, For the Dockers, leading possession winner, just 19 disposals. That was Luke Ryan. James Aish, He's been pretty good for them this season in his first season with the club. 18 disposals for him, 18 to Michael Walters. And uh, finally, not a good sign for the Dockers when in the first term, Matt Tabiner took a mark in the goal square. His opponent went to ground. He turned around to stroll casually into goal and was promptly pinged by Tom Barras lost possession and the ball dribbled through for a behind. Very reminiscent, in fact, of you-know-what incident involving... Mm, uh, Nick Rebolt. Correct. Uh, in fact, so reminiscent, I think I've already seen it replayed about five times. Uh, Tabernay actually was pretty dangerous looking up forward, but that uh, set a pretty ordinary precedent. Um, and uh, they didn't really recover from it. West Coast gradually exerting their control, four goals to two in the second term and uh, a real slog thereafter, only five goals kicked in the game in the second half and it was just a holding mission for the Eagles. But uh, all starting to come good for them. Luke Shuey, a late withdrawal, so once again proving they could do it without their skipper. Uh, Don't know about you, Fanny, but I reckon the Eagles looking increasingly ominous by the week. As you said, when you consider that they're facing a number of games in a row at Optus at their home ground with crowd allowed to come into the stadium, it's an ideal situation to be in. You look at them, you look at Brisbane to an extent, you look at the Gold Coast and you say, well, the season is panning out pretty nicely for them. In what is becoming obviously an extraordinary season of football, what West Coast needed to do was make sure that when the tide turned their way and the fixturing started to give them a real opportunity, they weren't off the pace. Well, they've actually not only tacked on, but they are, as you pointed out, percentage away from the top four. They're beautifully placed, aren't they? They don't have too many injuries. Shuey was a late withdrawal. They'd like to have Hutchings in that side, I reckon. More good news. Every week they get a little bit of good news, don't they? A few weeks ago, yo... About three weeks ago, Yo hit his straps. Kelly, not 
as effective today, but certainly had some good form leading into it over the last couple of matches. And now probably one of the main ingredients to a successful West Coast Eagles, and that is a functional forward line with the big boys, both playing their role, happened today. Nine goals scored, four of them to Kennedy, two of them to Darling. So we're getting closer to the not only make-up of the 22 that takes West Coast Eagles potentially all the way this season, knowing that both you and I... Uh, proponents for a grand final played in Western Australia, uh, the incentives there for them, isn't it? You know, the possibility of a home state, let alone home ground grand final, now many weeks at home and a ladder position that means that they're not off pace at all. If you needed any encouragement to put your nose to the grindstone and really get the job done, which we know West Coast are capable of at home, it's all there for them. You'd almost have to say, Rowan, that if they remain conscientious and injury-free, your pre-season selection for the flag, weren't they, West Coast? Uh, Richmond. Oh, Richmond. You, you were bullish about West Coast, though, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, they almost take pole position on the grid with the way things are panning out, don't they? I think they'd have to at the moment. Uh, I mean, I haven't seen the revised odds yet, but I'd be surprised if they weren't at least equal flag favourite now. Certainly worked themselves back into a position of strength. And the Dockers, well, you know, I mean, they're just at a stage where they can't afford to be without Nat Fife. They are very reliant on their top few players and they don't have him and their performance suffers accordingly. And that was even with Walters playing a pretty reasonable game for them. So... Wasn't though they threw him a towel. Look, they've um, they've played with a fair degree of honour, I think, this year. But they just don't have the cattle, uh, and uh, maybe they will down the track. But certainly not enough armoury at the moment to challenge the really good sides. And West Coast is certainly one of them. Don't you reckon, Rowan? Yeah. They've always been a fairly accommodating whipping boy in the Derby when all things are said and done. Well, I have uh, certainly. We're in the uh, initial flurries between the two sides. In fact, it took them, uh, well, they lost their first nine derbies, I think. And the overall record now is uh, West Coast 31, uh, Frio 20. So it's a pretty handy advantage. They've got a fair bit of catching up to do. And they're currently on their worst ever run. Yeah, yep. 10 makes it their worst losing streak against the Eagles. That is round seven, done and dusted. Uh, let's uh, kick off the shoes, put our feet up and ruminate on Life Matters, Fawny. Life Hacks, building a better world. All right, uh, I'm going to kick us off this week. Uh, I've got three relatively serious ones, so I hope you can lighten the mood a bit. I actually do. Uh, yeah, good. <laughs> I wanted to start today with um, uh, something pretty ridiculous on Twitter. And it was a tweet from a uh, MMA fighter who apparently, uh, I think he's a bit of a legend in his own lunchtime. Uh, apparently he's a bit of a star, but not many people seem to have heard of him, but uh, he's got the blue tick. His name is Vic Grujic. And uh, have a look at his timeline, and uh, it could be Donald Trump. He's certainly a fan of Donald Trump. 
But uh, I got stuck into him, Fawny, as did a lot of other people for this ridiculous tweet, which read, I will not wear a mask. I will not pay a fine. I will not comply. I will not bow down to you, addressing Dan Andrews. Uh, whatever your next set of demands are, I will not comply to either. I am a proud Australian, born free. Nothing will take that away from me. No virus, no dictator. Um, have a look down his timeline. You'll see that he believes the whole coronavirus pandemic is in fact a hoax to deliver us into the evil clutches of a Marxist government. Um, it's just crazy stuff and uh, worse, irresponsible stuff. And this is a guy who has a few thousand followers. Um, most disturbingly, that tweet, however much it was panned, when I last looked at it, had over 300 likes. The fact that there are 300 people who actually think that it's crap and we shouldn't be wearing masks and the whole thing's a hoax disturbs me greatly, Finey, is, and in itself is a pretty good explanation of as to why we're not going to knock this thing on the head very soon because there's a lot of idiots out there and there's a lot of crazy conspiracy theorists and they're holding us all back. So good on you, Vic. You and your stupid moronic followers are helping keep us all locked up, away from our loved ones and away from doing the stuff we normally like to do to enjoy our lives. Well done, you. Not. As I said previously, apart from being boring, you know, we know the coronavirus, Rowan, has been fertile ground for conspiracy theorists and some of their palaver some of them come in there with existing um, baggage existing notions that they try and imprint on this COVID new conspiracy and that is to do with the um, what are the what are the the Illuminati and the seven families that control all the world wealth and if you ever ever pin these people down and say well what's the end game you've got all these puppet um controllers, all these string pullers doing all these things, Dan Andrews the Machiavellian Marxist and half, ask most of them what actually Marxist means and they wouldn't be able to tell you the difference between Karl Marx and Groucho Marx but don't worry, they can spout and quote crap absolutely, if it's on the internet it's true by the way Rowan, if it comes with an internet program, you know if, if it's delivered on YouTube and it comes with uh, voiceover and some visuals well then it must be true this will be my first life hack by the way the fact is we know it's fertile ground for nutcases we know it is because uh, people are a bit scared and the truth behind a conspiracy theory is that the the psychological explanation to conspiracy theories are that there are a lot of people out there who are scared by what's happening and scared by the fact that a virus could come out of nowhere and change the way we live. And for those people, they would rather believe that it is some man-made conspiracy than a random occurrence. Because for some, the idea that the world we live in can throw up random roadblocks like the one we're currently experiencing is too much to fathom. And therein lies the conspiracy theorists safe ground and you know safe place and that is it's all been man-made 
and it's all being manipulated by some greater power. For them, that's a far more comfortable thought than the random nature of what is COVID-19. So I, I realise that you realize that you understand that these people are dangerous and that there are lunatics that follow them, but actually feel for them a bit, Rowan, because they're only scared people looking for an explanation for what is a pretty inexplicable event. Back to you. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to continue that theme because those people are the very people who continue to be exploited by News Corp. And if you're rolling your eyes thinking, oh, here he goes again, banging on about Murdoch. Yep, you're right, I am. Because we are in a very, very dangerous situation. So at the very least, you'd expect to have a responsible media that doesn't fan the flames of fear or prey on people's ignorance and bigotry. And they continue to do it. This is not a week after they devoted their entire front page of the Herald Sun to saying, we will beat this and we'll beat it by working together. They are absolutely full of crap, Finey. What has sparked my anger about this? Well, there is the concerted four-year hit job on Daniel Andrews. Yes, Daniel Andrews has made mistakes. Yes, he has accepted responsibility for those mistakes. Yes, we're in uncharted territory and whoever is in charge of leading the fight is likely to make mistakes. What we don't need are people finger-pointing and blaming and turning this into a political issue. They keep doing it. They keep doing it consistently. If it's not Dan Andrews, uh, and what's particularly got me fired up today, they have now turned their attack dogs on Victoria's Chief Health Officer, Brett Sutton. And, you know, this is a guy top of his field. He's trying to steer us through the unprecedented health crisis that we're facing. And none of these pricks taking pot shots have any expertise whatsoever, but now he's coming in for criticism as well. And I gather on their part, it's because they've decided politically he is aligned with the current state government. How the chief health officer's role or anything he said could be even vaguely made out to be political absolutely defies me. But they see him as being hand-in-hand with Andrews and therefore, he is fair game for them as well. They are cheap, nasty bullies. And I have absolutely had a gutful of that news organisation. They are absolutely revolting and disgraceful. And they are dragging this whole state down with them. And the irony there is, one of, I think their slogan is, we're for Victoria. Well, you're not. You're for certain vested interests in Victoria. You're for, you're for your rich corporate mates and your ideological bedfellows and you beat up on minorities and you are dragging the whole state down at the time when you should be throwing your support behind the state. It is, it's, it's treasonous, Finey. It's, it just made me so unspeakably angry. I really wish I was in a position where I could completely boycott everything associated with News Corp. Unfortunately, I can't because I need to be across what they do in the football space. If it wasn't for that, I would not wipe my ass with any of their papers. I would not watch a second of any show on Fox. They are revolting, Finey, and I have had a gutful of them. 
I'm not your cardiologist, but I might suggest that you avoid the front part of the paper at least to assist in keeping your blood pressure down. Well, I try to. It gets tweeted into my feed, unfortunately. Anyway, your second one. And I'm not sure that you haven't just had your rant for the evening as well. That was pretty powerful stuff. Well, I've got another one. (laughs) Never short for a rant. Okay, mine's not a conspiracy theory. I'm calling this a fact. Uh, I think we've kind of accepted that shorter quarters are going to be a necessary part of the 2020 season, but we don't like them. Is that correct, Rowan? Uh, Yep. I don't like the fact that a packet of twisties might be the same size packet, but has clearly got less twisties in it than when I was a kid. I don't like that. And I don't eat a lot of KFC. I'm not quite sure. Is it still called KFC or KFQ? Because I had some for dinner on Friday. What on earth is going on with the sizes of chicken? Surely it's now Kentucky Fried Quail. I mean, there's not a, there can't be a chicken on the planet that has a wing the size that they put in my box. Because it wouldn't be a bird. It would be... It's, are they now dealing with chickens that have evolved into reptiles? The wing, I've never seen anything as small in my life. I could have stuck that entire wing up one nostril. Now, I know I don't have the smallest nose on the planet, but no chicken wing should be able to be fit once battered up my nose. The breast, did I get the most flat-chested chicken in the history of chickendom? Poor embarrassed thing would have been walking around the wrestling chickens with a padded bra. And as for the leg, (laughs) I know why this chicken didn't make it to freedom, tiny little legs that it's got. If it had a chance to run for its life, because it couldn't have flown anywhere with those tiny wings, they must have a leg like an inch long. I don't know what's happened to KFC, but they are dealing with some of the smallest bird parts on the planet, and I'm very disappointed in it. Well, that's that's why you stick with Red Rooster. I'll go there next time, I'll tell you. Up to I you. Like Red Rooster. Number three, third hack. All right, uh, I am changing the pace, um, <clears throat> and sorry, this can't be more uplifting. But well, in a way, it could be. I um, I got out of the house today, Fanny, um, and there are only a couple of reasons you can, but you can on compassionate grounds. Um, I took a trip with Abby uh, out to Springvale Cemetery to visit the plot of a very good friend of ours, Karen Murray, who sadly passed away last November after having fought cancer for a fair while. Um, And we hadn't been out there before. And um, it's actually a beautiful place. It It is incredibly big and incredibly serene and there's lots of greenery and Uh, It's a good space for reflection. Um, But what really struck me was just as we were looking at all the plots and um, I'm not sure what they're called, but where they keep people's ashes while they're waiting to be assigned to a plot. And there were a number of people visiting friends and family that they'd lost and, uh, you know, people visibly upset and people just sitting there to spend time with someone who meant a lot to them as we did. And I was just looking along the wall at the inscriptions on the plaques and I saw the names of at least 
you know, in a one sort of glance, uh, the names of probably 40 or 50 people, all of whom had died in the last six months. And then I had a look at the people who were sitting there reflecting on that and saw the distress and uh, the impact that it had on them. Where's all this leading? Well, I guess it just made me think how valuable life is, how um, we must treasure every moment of it, how tragic it is to lose people young and people who you love and who mean a lot to you. And uh, I guess I also thought that all these people come from different paths and different walks of life and, you know, they may think differently to you and you may be opposed to them about this or about that. But, you know, everyone at some stage has some sort of tragedy in their lives and um, it affects us all in, in varying ways. And we're all vulnerable and we're all fragile and uh yeah i got a bit emotional I, I just thought about how precious human life is particularly at the moment and that's why i get so angry about the coronavirus stuff because the sorts of people who are being so flippant about it and so selfish about it clearly aren't in a position where they've lost people close to them and i reckon their views would be a lot different so it always does you good i think to um just reflect on you know, at the end of the day, all, even everything we talk about here, it all pales into insignificance compared to life and uh, living and being able to enjoy what fairly limited time we have on this planet. That's it. You made it a little difficult for me to go after that. Sorry. <laughs> I've got a little football piece, but it hardly seems... That was very well said, Rowan, but it, I feel as though I'm delving into the trite and irrelevant now. No, no, no. Look, just let me say, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I haven't ventured out of home base much and uh, I'm glad I did today for a, a good reason. But, you know, life goes on and, and, you know, everyone's life is different. I'm just saying perhaps we should all appreciate it a bit more. Yeah. Okay. I agree entirely. I'll try and follow that up with a football a football version life hack. Pause, break, start again. Here we go. Um, look, I heard this twice today in football coverage, and it gets on my goat a bit. When you hear... Okay, first was um, James Brayshaw, then Ross Lyon on radio. When you hear this term, what's the implication? What, what do you think they're sort of half saying? Well... I can tell you that uh, just internally, within the club, they really rate this bloke. What do you think they're sort of... We know that they're saying that the play they're talking about is highly rated, but... They're I, implying I, that no no one else does or is smart enough to appreciate them. They, but yeah, sort of. Are they sort of implying that they've got a um, direct line to the inner workings of the club? Yeah, Okay, one was James Brayshaw talking about Cozzy Pickett. And to be honest, I can't remember who Ross Lyon was talking about, but it was somebody who's only played two games. Now, think about it. I mean, these clubs have been away for two or three weeks already, up in Queensland, isolating. When did, when have James Brayshaw and Ross Lyon, you know, they may have a, a, a phone line into the clubs, but I don't know. I, I find that comment... 
suggestive of a understanding of the inner workings. I mean, I cannot believe Ross Lyon, immediate past coach, thorny customer as he is, just has a hotline into the, I think it was maybe Melbourne, inner sanctum. Who do you, and you know, who do you really rate at the moment? I just think it's something that they've obviously worked out by selection and by current form. You know, here's a youngster getting a bit of a go. And stop implying that you've got some, you know, special connection with football clubs that actually you don't. And again, it's that that whole sort of... Um, boys club. Boys club. And, and also, you know, chest pounding and how good am I that is based very... If people think about it, it's often based on a little bit of BU bullshit. You know, a lot of it's made up, mate, I'm telling you. I know because I work in the industry. All right. Uh, yeah, no, I'm with you on that one as well. All right. Uh, there are life hacks this week. Uh, not exactly uplifting and um, sorry about that. But uh, I mean, but, yours was very serious, but don't worry. A lot of people will be very concerned about the state of the KFC dinner box as well. Trust me. Oh, yeah. Well, it's certainly on the list of important topics to be considered. All right. Uh, I think we should go out with a bang finally. Let's do some ranting. On Footyology, the rant off. All right. Uh, this may surprise you, Finey, but I've actually got a football-flavoured rant. Are you ready to hear it? Of course I am, mate. Oh, can Count you me in. I oh, will do that. One, two, football me on three. I'm pissed off with AFL football, Finey. What is it about this game that just when you're ready to give up on it, it sucks you back in? For months now, I've been ready to move on. You know, change my life. Find new hobbies and pastimes of real value, which won't leave me in a perpetual state of despair, like a relationship that's turned sour. I've actually been quite excited about discovering that beneath my 10-foot-high weeds actually resides a garden or something like getting down to Bunnings for something other than the sausages. You know, Finey, journos are famous for having no practical skills whatsoever. It's always been a dream of mine to pop down the backyard to the old tool shed and whip up a spice rack or something like that once I was over the footy bug. And I was almost there. Another couple of snorefests between teams that couldn't score, playing kick-to-kick in slow motion, and I was ready to give it all away for a life with more real meaning. And then bloody Port Adelaide and Carlton had to come out this afternoon at Metricon and play the most exciting game we've seen all season. It was so good that for a while I didn't even recognise that it was AFL football. It was bizarre, Finey. It was quick. There were eight goals scored in the first quarter. There was drama. There was a grandstand finish and one of the best post-siren kicks we've ever seen to win a game from Robbie Gray. The weirdest thing of all was, I didn't really give a stuff who won, and yet at the end, my heart was racing, and I had to jump out of my seat when Gray went to take his kick. Remember that feeling? I'm not sure I've been that excited about a game since the 2018 Grand Final. And now I don't know what to think. Is the game stuffed, or is it okay? I mean, that wasn't the only decent game this week. The Bulldogs played some pretty entertaining football when they beat up on Essendon. Brisbane were good to watch against GWS. And Melbourne kicked its highest score of the season and actually looked reasonably efficient when it went near goal. That hadn't happened for nearly two years until Sunday afternoon. Was this retro round or something, Finey? 
or, and you'd really hope this was the case, have coaches suddenly realised that attempting to bore your opponent into submission might not be the optimum way of winning games of football, let alone keeping your own players enthusiastic about their jobs. That hangdog expression some of them have been wearing during those interminably boring games we've seen too many of suggested to me they'd rather have been doing a shift in the Siberian salt mines. Let's just pray this newfound spirit of enterprise is what we're going to see a bit more of for the rest of 2020 and not just a mirage. Because if it is finding, I'm back. Bunnings can wait. And so can those weeds. I've finally got some footy. I feel like watching. It was a good game, wasn't it? It was a great game. My enthusiasm has rekindled. Long may it last. You know what I loved about the end of that game, by the way? What? When... All is said and done. Let's be honest. The coach, Ken Inkley, he could do no more than watch the finish like any other Port Adelaide supporter. His reaction was exactly the same as any diehard Port fan. You know, forget that the camera was on him. Did you see the absolute elation, hugging blokes and then banging on the door as he was leaving? I mean, that was straight out of support of 101, wasn't it? It was great. And the other guys in the box were just as excited. All right, I'm excited about the prospect of your rant, and I'm going to count you in right now. One, two, three, rant. To quote my old friend on Lost in Space, the robot, warning, warning, warning. It happened probably with most of our fans, or most of our listeners, Rowan, fast asleep, but I woke up for it. It was a game that really meant very little to most people. It was Huddersfield at home to West Bromwich Albion in front of no real fans. Huddersfield, courtesy of a late goal, had a surprise victory and won 2-1. And in doing so, opened up the gates of hell and unleashed a curse upon football fans that no one can dare quantify. Do you know what happened, Rowan? I'll tell you. After 16 years in the wilderness... The nasty northern lads of English football are back in the Premier League. Leeds United have returned home. Now, it just happens that a lot of my mates are Leeds United supporters. There's the heavily tattooed Nigel, his brother-in-law Bollocks, Two Smiles, so named because somebody took to his face with a carving knife when he was young, and he has his original smile and the one carved into his cheek, and various other co-stars among this group of Australian, or more accurately, Melbourne-based malcontents and 'er ne'er-do-wells whose team is suddenly back in the EPL. I'm telling you, if you're a follower of English football, do not venture far from home next season, which, by the way, is only just over a month away, because the bad boys in white are back in town. My own West Ham survived the drop with a good win over Watford on the weekend, and I'm half upset that they did it. I can already hear the banging onto the doors at 1.30am in the morning. Hello, find me, old lad. Hello, lad. Hello, lad. You've got Foxtel. You've got Optus. Let us in. Let us in. We've got some tenants lager. We're going to drink you under the table, you lousy East London bastard. Oh, my God. Beware. 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 The boys in white that ain't all right, Leeds United, are back in town. Wow. Okay. I didn't, uh, I didn't know that. Who else is going up? The Yet to be decided, uh, the unlikely bees, Brentford, are actually in prime position now to go up 
without having to qualify through the playoffs. And that would be amazing. Brentford has never been in such a lofty position. Their famous little ground is actually up for demolition at the end of the season. They've got a big new one to move into. So it could be Brentford. But Leeds are there. And I'm telling you, Rowan, I know you're not a big fan of the EPL. Things are never going to be quite the same with them back up there. Oh, no. no I'm, I wouldn't say I wasn't a fan of the EPL. I, I have lost touch a bit with it this season. But uh, I did say also, just quickly, have you seen the Netflix series about Sunderland? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the chairman has handed in his resignation. I've forgotten his name temporarily. Yeah, there's no happy ending for Sunderland. If people watch that series, Sunderland Till I Die, they're still dying and withering on the vine because they're stuck in League One. Yeah, not good. All right, no, I enjoyed that one. Well done. Good note to finish on. And finish is what we are doing. Please give our sponsors a plug. Thank you. Oh, boy. I am absolutely up for a burger. I think I've missed the closing time. But if I could possibly get to 144 Bridport Street, that's where I'd be headed right now. The beautiful Andrews Hamburgers. What I would do now for a great Andrews Hamburger, a nice cold can of Pasciana and some hot chips, Words can't describe, but I'll get there as soon as they reopen. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. And Nick Spartels, don't worry, Nicky, your Carlton were brave. It doesn't diminish from your beautiful house builds. Westport Properties, get involved. West Point Properties, I should say. Get involved. Brilliant rebuilds in the southeastern part of Melbourne. Back to you, Roko. Thank you, sponsors. Thank you, listeners, one and all. We always appreciate your support. If you want to support us a little more tangibly, please jump on our Patreon page and you will, uh, for a $5 US donation per month, avail yourself to everything available on the Footyology banner. And uh, there's also a supporter um, page on Acast, our, our podcast platform. We're very grateful for their support as well. That is it for this show. Uh, Hope your team had a win. If they didn't, better luck next week. We'll see you next Thursday. 